Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique, and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. There was a driveway where our company was, and there was a driveway maybe um, like 200 feet right before it. And then the next driveway was like two miles down the road. And every day we would drive to work, you'd turn into the first driveway. Anyway, that was not the driveway for our company. You'd have to turn around and go back out on the road. And I'm like, Bob, how are you making this mistake? You know, you've made this commute so many times. I've done it with you. And he's just was like, well, I'm pretty sure it's the second driveway, but I always take the first because it's a non-symmetric loss function. Because in the off chance I'm wrong and I forgot, I have to drive a whole mile, then a whole mile back. And I was like, wow, he thinks about a non-symmetric loss function. I mean, who just has that in their head? But, you know, you know, he is right. I was really like realized after spending time with him and learning risk from him that like, wow, this is actually a really useful way to live your life. I mean, you don't have to constantly said berate your friends with it, but it is kind of a very nice way to organize your thoughts and can help you make better decisions. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Allison, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, Thanks for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So as I was saying before we hit record here, um, I was, you know, for some strange reason, getting really obsessed with this idea of risk tolerance and thinking that there's got to be something written about the psychology of risk. And then I happened to stumble on your book in an airport bookstore, just the title alone, an economist walks into a brothel. I was like, okay, what the hell? So I have to ask you about the title, but we'll get to that. Um, but before we get to all that, I want to start with a question that I think is really fitting given the nature of your work, and that is what social group were you a part of in high school, and what impact did that end up having on your life uh, and the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career? Well, you know, I think about this a lot because I don't know if I was like risk averse in high school, but I really was like determined not to be affiliated with a social group. And in retrospect, I think that made my high school experience not as good as it could have been. Mm. Because I felt like there, I, I, I guess I was just risk averse, or I just sensed all this downside risk that if I was associated with people, I had friends, but I refused to join a group because I felt like that would somehow brand me or people would judge me, and I didn't want to do that. And in retrospect, that was a bad decision. Um, because I think I really missed out later in life of really understanding how to form a sense of community. And how to identify with people. It's good to have a social group in high school because it does do those things. Yeah. And I sort of regret that I was so, you know, into diversification, I guess, of mm-hmm. like feeling like I, I didn't want to go all in with one group. But there was a lot of upside to have, having done that. And I, you know, mm-hmm. it wasn't until I think I was like 35, I really had a solid social group of friends who were all friends with each other. Uh-huh. It, well, it's funny you say that you're talking about diversification because that's literally where the where the the first place my mind went. Have you ever seen the movie Van Wilder? Yes. Okay. So every time I see that movie, and unfortunately, I feel like I saw it after I graduated from college, mm-hmm. and I'm literally in the process of writing a book proposal for another book. And and one of the experiments and risks that I want to take is to live like Van Wilder for mm-hmm. a week, because uh, I always thought, okay, what an interesting way to try to build a social life in college instead of joining one group, you know 
meet as many people as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, you know, kind of wonder, like, uh, one, you know, how did that change after you after you left high school? Like, did you start to change that sort of perception of social groups, or was it always like that? Um, no, I said I don't think I really conquered it until I was thirty five or so, mm-hmm. um, because then I actually went to. I think I liked the idea that I was this outsider who couldn't be identified. And I don't know why, because I think that made high school a lot lonelier. Mm. But for some reason, I decided to run with that. And I ended up going to college in another country um, where there were very few other Americans. And I think that's part of what attracted me to that experience was that you're you're automatically then an outsider. You're automatically not going to be able to be branded as anything. Because one problem with being an international student is you you notice in social interactions how... um, people sort of signal things about themselves. Like, this is who I am. This is where I went to school. This is where I grew up. And you sort of connect with people based on the shared experiences and then being able to place you. And when they signal things to you, you responding the way they want you to respond. But you become very aware when you're a foreign student, um, you don't have any of those things. (laughs) You know, no one could make sense of who I was and I couldn't make sense of who they were and wasn't able to give them what they need in social situations for that reason. Um, you know, I learned, it took me about a year and a half in college to even learn how to make friends with British people just because, (laughs) I mean, nothing wrong with British people, but I think just, you know, any country you would have had that experience. Um, just because you didn't, I wasn't getting all the, the, you know, there's different cues and there's different signaling. And I I think I seeked out being this exotic person that no one could place, but it also, again, made, I think things socially harder for me in college. Although the upside is, as I said, I really learned how to connect well with British people. Um, or so I think, and I was just in the UK last week and I, and it was instantly felt so comfortable and it was so easy to connect with people everywhere I went. Cause I'm like, Oh yeah, this is the skill I learned in college. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one thing I wonder uh, is what was the message that your parents gave you about risk? And and the reason I ask this is you grew up in an Indian family. Like, you know, I, I think the way our careers are guided is minimize risk as much mm-hmm. as possible, particularly if you're going to choose a career in the arts. Don't. Uh, yeah, my, my dad talked me out of being a music major, which I, I think was a really good idea. It was good advice and I'm glad he did it. Um, but, but I think in general, like cultural narratives, particularly in immigrant cultures are always minimize risk, particularly when you're choosing a career path. And I wonder, you know, what your own parents' advice was about this. And also you, uh, got to be in college in another culture. What have you noticed as the difference, uh, in risk tolerance in other cultures from having had the experience you did in college? Well, I think, I think my parents, they never explicitly talked about risk, but everyone in my family is self-employed. Um, like my grandparents were self-employed, my parents were self-employed. And in fact, my mother always encouraged me to be in the arts. And I think she always says she was a little disappointed when I became an economist, because I think she always thought I'd do something more creative. Although I, I think of economics as creative in its own way. But I think that the fact I have parents who are self-employed and everyone in my family is, I, I think that really facilitated a lot of risk-taking for me. Because, you know, you know, when I finished grad school, everyone else who has a PhD feels like they have to be part of a big institution. And I was always very uncomfortable with that. Uh, you know, I've had some great jobs at great institutions, but I'm not good at being part of an institution. Um, I think because I was just, you know, raised to feel like, you know, your own risk, your own reward. Mm. Um, about the UK, you know, I'm trying to think. I wasn't all that risk aware Um, and I think in the UK really, I don't know if it's different than here, but I definitely felt like amongst my friends in college, they are incredibly risk averse. 
Um, I'm sh- and you know, I don't want to generalize the whole culture because I think you fall in with a social group. And yeah. I'm sure there's social groups like this in America who are very much like you must get married at a certain age. You must sort of take your place in sort of your class ranking in society. And, you know, you don't step outside those bounds. Um, that's definitely how my college friends turned out. Oh, that's Berkeley in a nutshell. That's literally yeah. my entire social circle at Berkeley you're describing. Yeah. So I don't know if that's particularly British. I don't know Americans who do that, mainly because I'm a journalist. So none of us did that. Um, so I think there's some selection bias in who my friends are. Because even when I've gone back to the UK as working as a journalist, like when I was at The Economist, they weren't like that. So I don't know if that's a... I always assigned it to being a British thing, but I'm not sure that's particularly fair. Yeah. Are you a parent, just out of curiosity? No. Okay. Uh, because I, I guess I wonder, you know, parents listening to this, what would you tell them about risk tolerance in their kids? And, and I think the other thing is for parents, at least, is, you know, how do they develop a tolerance for the risk that their kids take? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a good question. I mean, if I was a parent, I'd definitely encourage my kids to take risks because it's how you, it's the only way you're going to be successful and your life is going to move forward and all this stuff about accepting, you know, when risks don't go your way, that's a, in being resilient or cer- cer- like really important life skills. Although easier said than done when you don't have children, because I'm sure, yeah. you know, you know, encouraging people to take risks is also really scary, particularly if they are into physical risks. Like, I imagine that mm-hmm. must just be terrifying. <laughs> well, this is my, my average surf trip is, you know, with my parents, call home, let us know you're having debt. Mm-hmm. You're not dead every day. Do you surf big waves? I'm not a big wave surfer. Right. I, I mean, my average surf, like my biggest surf day is probably six to eight feet. Like I, I mean, I kind of came to the, the conclusion that at the age of 40, I'm never going to learn how to surf these massive waves, but I'm an avid snowboarder as well. So, and those there I do black diamonds and, you know, push, you know, I'll, I'll push it hard. I'll hit 40 mile an hour runs on certain days. And, you know, I mean, I've taken some nasty falls because of it. Mm-hmm. So I, I would say it's funny because I think people who, who do action sports, they are not necessarily it's that they're risk seekers per se. I think we're all just addicted to flow. So we're, we're kind of adrenaline junkies, but with that comes risk. Yeah, it is interesting because I'm not a risk taker at all when it comes to physical sports. Like I don't ski at all. Like everyone's at least like skis a little. I don't, I, I just, the idea for me of putting on something slippery on your feet and going down an icy mountain seems insane. Um, but it, it seems like a pretty low grade risk for most people. And I think, you know, there's a lot of benefits to it. But uh, I am a big risk taker in other ways. Like I think certainly in my career, in my personal life, I take big risks, but yeah. I don't take unnecessary physical risks at all. But then again, I know so many people who are incredibly risk averse in every aspect of their life, but they do, you know, they're avid skiers or I don't know, the surfers, I wouldn't say were particularly risk averse. It depends. And it's, you know, everyone has some aspect of their life where they take risks and others where they don't. Yeah. I guess, you know, like with parents, it's always one of those complicated things of, okay, like you said, encouraging kids to take risks and at the same time, like not losing your minds. Because I think as a parent, if I were a parent, I would think, okay, I'm going to encourage my kid to go out and, you know, ride a black diamond or surf, you know, decent waves. And in my mind, I think I'd probably be having the exact same thoughts as my own parents. Well, shit, don't drown, don't break anything. Uh, and I wonder how you, you navigate that sort of anxiety of being a parent, um, knowing that your kid is going to take risks, but also, you know, knowing that you want them to be safe. Like you have these two sort of paradoxes at play. Well, what's the upside to skiing? Is it just the fun, the social aspect? All of it. Mm-hmm. I think well, the, the, it's funny because exercise is like just a convenient fringe benefit mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned. You talk to any action sports athlete, they'll tell you the same thing. It's like, eh, yeah, the exercise is great, but that's not why we do it. 
Because I was talking to Greg Long, uh, the, one of the surfers mm-hmm. I talked to. You know, we had this whole conversation about after he had this surfing experience where he almost drowned, how it really made him. And, you know, he like grew up surfing. I mean, his father was a big surfer. I think as long as he could walk, he was surfing. And he was one of the big guys in his field and one of the you know most well-known big wave surfers. But after he nearly drowned, he really thought about quitting. Like he's really like, this isn't fun, you know, and this is scary. And, um, and one of the things he really, he eventually did go back to it, although he does do it less and he says he pursues it less full in a sort of aggressive way. But, you know, he's like, this was my identity. You know, he's like, I think back to just having beers with my friends after we surfed a big wave and just how good it felt. And I mean, I don't think that's why he stuck with it. I think he also does love the sport. But it became even bigger than actual surfing. It was, all, you know, his whole world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well, let's do this. Let's uh, let's shift gears and let's get into the 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 content in the book itself, like the framework for for you know what you basically say is you know taking a risk and minimizing possibility that the worst will happen. But you know, I want to start by asking you. You you, you mentioned this quote where you say, if we want a great relationship, we risk heartbreak. If we want to get ahead at work, we have to volunteer for projects that we might fail at. If we avoid risks, our lives won't move forward. Mm -hmm. Technically, risk describes everything that might happen, both good and bad, and how probable each of these outcomes is. So I wonder how you get from there to beginning your study of risk in a brothel in Las Vegas. Um, So, you know, this, so that was the definition, I guess, of risk. But my approach comes from my training in financial economics, which is the study of risk in financial markets, or the study of risk in markets in general just happens to be applied to financial markets. Um, and so I, was, I initially went to the brothel, uh, not to study risk, but uh, I was doing a story for courts on negotiation skills, because uh, it turns out the brothel offers really good negotiation training. Um, and I was doing a story on that. And it was while I was, I was there, I kind of had this book ideas, I was sort of trying to look for stories. And I was really surprised to find out when I was there, how much more they charge. Cause they charge like three times, threefold more than what you would charge in the underground market. Um, which is surprising because you, the underground market, you don't have to go to Nevada for, you know, um, so and you know, three times the price is significant. And I was interested to discover I was there. It actually turned out to be a risk premium because in finance, what we're always trying to do is, uh, you know, you have risk and what we try to do is you try to measure it and put a price on it. And then you transfer it from one person to the other. And so I started talking to people and I realized this price markup was a risk premium. Um, or so a price you're paying to reduce risk. And I think the finance financial economist to me is always just, on the lookout for how risk uh, factors into prices. Hmm. Wow. Okay. So you, you basically break down the book into sort of these, you know, core rules, right. Um, that help us take smart risks by basically defining risk, measuring it, identifying the types of risks that we face and managing it. So let's start with that first rule, which you say no risk, no reward. And I think that the first thing that I thought of, you know, when you said that you talk about the fact that a well-defined goal is a really you know important part of this. Can you expand on that? Yeah, I mean, I think when we I said when we think about risk, we always think someone's a risk taker, and you know, it's this binary thing, and you just like take a risk to change for, for change. But really, you know, you should always take a risk with a goal in mind. You take a risk for upside. I mean, that's why you do it. So, I, and I found that you know, if you really want to increase the odds of risk will work out, the most uh, sort of effective way to increase the odds it will work out is to take a risk with a well-defined goal. 
And I find mm-hmm. that's usually where people fail. Like even in finance, um, people s- sort of just, you know, take a risk by investing in risky assets without really thinking, well, how much money do I actually need for this objective? Or what is my time frame? Because when you are very clear on your goal, how much risk, first of all, it tells you how much risk you need to take and there's no reason to take any more. But second of all, you can also sort of figure out um, how much you can get if you don't take any risk at all, which we call a risk-free mm-hmm. asset, which sort of is sort of how you define what your goal is. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think you can see this in anything. You know, I, I've always known people who just sort of hated their jobs and they're like, hate their relationships. So they're like, I'm just going to like quit everything and just move. And that almost never works out for them. It always seems like they move back to New York within three years um, because they think moving is going to co- solve all their problems and taking this big risk is going to give them all this change. But really, they haven't identified what's wrong. They haven't identified really what it is they want from their career. They haven't really identified what they want from relationships. So you really need to be really clear on what you're taking your risk for. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so... The other thing you talk about is measuring uh, risk. But, but before we get into measuring, so one of the things, you know, let's say your clearly defined goal is something that you can't control. So for example, we're both authors, right? Mm-hmm. You can't control whether the market says, okay, you know what, Allison, your book deserves to be on the New York Times bestseller list. Like maybe somebody doesn't. I, I know this because I, I've seen a lot of artists in particular set goals that are out of their control. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder, you know, when it comes to your clearly defined goal in that sense, how do you navigate that? Well, I mean, what are you writing a book for? I thought about this a lot, obviously. There's something very meta about writing a book about risk because book writing <laughs> is, is, is so risky. And, you know, I thought about this a lot. You want your book to do well, but are you writing a, bit, a book with the sole intention of getting on the New York Times bestseller list? I mean, that seems like a pretty sort of, I don't know. I, I, wouldn't, I guess that could be someone's goal, but I wouldn't suggest it. I mean, you write yeah. a book for a lot of reasons. It could be, first of all, it could be to elevate your career. It could be to get speaking gigs. You don't need to be on the bestseller list to achieve that. I mean, it's good if you are, but it's certainly not mm-hmm. necessary. Or, you know, the way I came to terms with it is this whole project was just, at the end of the day, a creative need in me. You know, I'd worked as a journalist a lot of years. I worked as an academic. I worked in industry. And I just felt like this need to bring this all together and really explore new ways we could understand risk. And that was just something creatively I needed. And, you know, I I thought about it and I'm like, I'm going to do all I can to make sure this book is successful. I'm going to hire a PR team. I'm going to try to sort of really study, you know, what books were successful to sort of maximize the odds it does well. But at the end of the day, the New York Times bestseller list was not an explicit goal. And, you know, uh-huh. it's kind of not a great goal anyway. Like, I can't imagine. <laughs> right. I mean, it's great if it happens for sure. But, you know, what does that bring you? Mm-hmm. Other than maybe a slightly higher speaking fee. Yeah. yeah. Or maybe a bigger <laughs> advance on your next book. But, you know, you can get all those things without being on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about this idea of measuring risk. Uh, you know, how do, how does one measure risk? You know I mean? Cause I, I think about it, uh, you know, from like, I, it's funny you mentioned the Greg Long story because I mean, I've had one near drowning incident in Nicaragua. It was like a 13 foot day. And after that, I thought to myself, okay, you know what? I think I've found my limit in terms of what I can tolerate as a surfer. Uh, I am, you know, probably going to be somebody who surfs six to eight foot days for the rest of my life, probably four to six foot days. Uh, so I, I wonder, you know, how you think about this idea of, of measuring risk and how it actually impacts, uh, our behavior when it comes to taking risks. Well, um, I mean, technically in finance, the way you measure risk is through data, right? You sort of figure Mm -hmm. out how risky an asset is by looking at its past performance. 
Um, but to some extent we do this in a lot of other ways. Like if you're driving to the airport, you know, you base your travel time based on earlier airport trips, or if you're surfing example, you know, you were, you had good experiences surfing six to eight foot waves, and then you had a bad experience surfing a 13 foot waves. You're like, all right, sort of that is risks. I will not take the risks around 13 foot waves is just not something I'm willing to do. So, Mm. but that's always a challenge because, you know, data is, um, imperfect and a terrible way to predict the future, but it's sort of Mm. all we have because data changes all the time. Like you might have a new route to the airport that tells you nothing. Or even Greg says that sometimes, um, you know, the hardest waves aren't necessarily correlated with size. Uh, Mm -hmm. he's like some of the hardest waves he says he's ever surfed have been 10 foot waves. So it's an imperfect. It's like you had a bad experience surfing a 13 foot wave, but there's some 13 foot waves that are probably a lot easier to surf than some six foot waves. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that, that's, that's absolutely true. So, you know, we're talking about it in something that's quantifiable, like the size of a wave or, you know, in your mm-hmm. case, you know, traffic, but how do you measure risk in the context of something that isn't as easily measurable? So for example, like dating a person mm-hmm. you know, or a, a person's human behavior, like how can I measure the risk possibly of, of somebody that I'm going on a date with and, and entering a relationship with them? What am I going to basically say, Hey, give me your entire you know, sort of history so I can do an analysis on it. I feel like people do that on dates, though. I feel like when I go on dates, I always get quizzed on my history. I guess they're date- collecting yeah. data. Okay. I mean, and it's interesting. I find as you get older, you um, do collect more data. Like, I remember in my 20s, no one would, like, ask me all these questions on dates that I feel like date- collect people like now. Because as you get older, you've had a lot more experience. And you know mm. what data points you need to collect about whether or not, you know, this person's for you and what it is you're looking for. Uh-huh. So I think they're definitely, I mean, to some extent, you know, there, there's a lot of ineffable qualities when you, uh, about who you should be in a relationship with, but I certainly yeah. find as you get older and we have more experience, um, people definitely become a little bit, a lot more systematic about dating and definitely better about data collection and knowing, all right, I know these characteristics didn't go well for me in the past. And that's yeah. talking about behavior. I mean, we often like to say, oh, people are terrible at taking risks but there's also a lot of evidence that when people take risks repeatedly, they get a lot better at it. And they're able to mm. sort of use data from the past to update their behavior. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Okay, so we'll come back to this because there's still this I think will make a perfect tie into the sort of next chapter about the fact that we're not rational. But I wanted to ask you what the difference is between idiosyncratic and systematic risk. So idiosyncratic risk in finance is like this is the risk that an individual stock would rise or fall, you know, based on things just to do with that stock. Like if Facebook, you know, fired Mark Zuckerberg, that would affect say Facebook stock, but probably not a lot of other stocks. Um, systematic risk is risk to the entire market, like the risk that the entire market would fall. Uh, like the crash of 2008. Although, as I said, we see this in all sorts of things. Like your job could have idiosyncratic versus systematic risk. So idiosyncratic risk in your job would be like one particular company doesn't work out, you hate your boss, you're a bad fit culturally, as opposed to systematic risk is, you know, the whole market has changed and, uh, you know, your whole industry, like, like retail is just shrinking in general. All right. So let's get into this whole idea of the fact that we're irrational. You know, I know you referenced Danny Duke's work here and, and I remember talking to her about this. She's like, look, she's like, I, I, cause I, I think I was trying to get her to tell me, how do you make decisions without emotions being involved? She's like, that's not possible. You're human. Uh, but I, I think what, what really struck me was the impact that, you know, the way data is presented and our, you know, the perceived probability has on our behavior when it comes to risk, because I, I particularly loved the lottery ticket example. Cause I thought, you know, you know this is so idiotic. Anybody who has an economics degree or anybody who knows the first thing about odds would be like, yeah, you're never going to win the damn lottery. But like you said, they would never put that on, uh, you know, on the place. Even when my dad, you know, in the gas station, you'll never see that. Mm -hmm. Even my dad tells me to play the lottery. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm never going to win. Mm -hmm. I would rather 
put that effort mm-hmm. and money into something that I could do on my own. But um, talk to me about about you know perceived probability and how do you not fall victim to probability and, and have this sort of confirmation bias? Because I've seen that happen too with people who buy like an online course. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, well, this person got this result from attending this workshop. So based on that one person, I'm going to get the same result. Yeah. And it's becoming more and more of an issue as we get more and more data. So how it's presented to us really can influence our behavior because this is one of the ways that, you know, economists always, you know, model that people see a probability and they internalize that probability to be equal to what the probability actually is, but how we internalize probabilities and respond to them and what they actually are can be two different things. And I mean, in some ways, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, you know, Probability is a fairly recent invention, something that came out of so the late Renaissance. So the idea that our minds don't conform to sort of probability estimates isn't exactly surprising because it's relatively new. Like we're not born knowing how to read either. Mm. And so it's um, not surprising. We're, we don't exactly aren't born understanding probability theory. Although it, I find it interesting that we don't teach probability theory. Like it's not something a lot of people are ever exposed to. Yeah, it's kind uh-huh. of a critical life skill. Um, uh-huh. I, I, w- I was once with two friends and we were filming a risk video. And these were both guys who went to Princeton and studied literature. And, you know, they would definitely make fun of people for not reading great books. Or, you know, having had read certain authors. But at one point I was explaining a probability distribution to them. And I said, oh, the area under the curve sums to one. And they just like looked at me and like, why are you speaking like Greek to me? Like, that like laughed at sort of this nerdy thing I said. And I'm like, really? Like, it's not okay that people haven't, you know, read great books, but like not knowing basic probability is socially acceptable. Like, that seems weird to me. I understand that's the world I live in, but I think it's weird. Mm-hmm. Um. So until we actually push probability theory um, on everyone, there are things you can do to make sense of it. And uh, the work of Gerger Gerenzer, the uh, German psychologist, uh, does a lot of work on this, of how people can make better decisions and make better sense of probabilities. And he argues that you know probabilities are inherently meaningless to most people unless you study it. But uh, natural frequencies do resonate more with people. So rather than saying 55%, say 55 out of 100 times, people actually, Mm -hmm. when they start thinking in terms of frequencies instead of probabilities, actually start making decisions that are more, say, quote-unquote rational or the way economists do expect. You just have to learn how to translate these things. So like if you're seeing a Coursera that will promise you you riches or some online course, you know, you don't look at the one guy who did well. You need to know, well, out of how many people, how many people didn't mm-hmm. do well. So you have to collect all the data. Yeah. Well, I think that there's this other sort of phenomenon, which I, I've mentioned on the show, and I'd be really interested to hear about this from your perspective. Uh, you know, when you look at sort of the entire self-help industry, right, you have sort of three groups of people, which is, you know, the people who will get a result from this thing, whether they did that thing or not, um, because that's just how they're wired. Then you have the sort of people who change, you know, where, you know, that book or the, the course or the, the seminar can be a catalyst for. And then you have a third group who's just stuck in this vicious mm-hmm. cycle um, of, you know, more personal development. Something is continually wrong. And I, I feel like the entire industry is built off of that third group of people. And I wonder from the standpoint of an economist, just based on what you said, how you like, do you have a, a sort of solution for that? So like people who do self-help and don't really change, they just keep doing it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, do they change a little? I mean, maybe you, you know, maybe you read David Ramsey and you still spend a lot, but maybe you don't buy coffee anymore. 
I mean, maybe, yeah. maybe, or maybe the process is helpful to people or feeling like they're trying to change, even if they're not willing to do the hard work. Uh-huh. Uh, so the other thing you talk about is emotion. And, and this is, you know, you said basically that people often measure risk based on what's happened in the past, but does the past tell us anything about the future? And if so, what history is most relevant? And you, so I'll give you the most absurd example to talk about this. Uh, basically, I think that somewhere along the way, I decided that I wouldn't date women who have small dogs because every woman that I've had in my life who's had a small dog has either broken up with me or been a giant pain in the ass or caused a lot of drama in my life, even if it was somebody I didn't mm-hmm. date, which is ridiculous because I, I remember telling my friend Brian this. He said, your sample size is three mm-hmm. people. That's insane. Uh, so that's my example. But the thing is, I know for a fact that I'm saying that because my emotions are, are you know causing me to make that judgment. So how do we deal with the fact that this is the case? And at the same time, you know, we want to obviously learn from our past, but we don't want the past to determine our future because we close ourselves off from possibilities. For all I know, like the woman of my dreams could be somebody that has a small dog and I decide not to date her simply because of a small dog, which I realize is an insane example. Well, three people is not trivial. I mean, how many people have you dated in your life? That's not a, that's a non-trivial, like, that's not a trivial number considering how many people you've probably dated, right? Okay, fair enough. <laughs> um, you know, I, um, you know, I can only imagine the emails I'm going to get from dog lovers after this. They're going to be vicious. I mean, maybe. I mean, would you just not even go out with a woman once who had a small dog? It's just like this is a non-starter for me. No, I mean, it was one of those sort of rules that kind of was like, you know, I probably shouldn't date women with small dogs based on. I history. think it's a fair red flag. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you don't want to like be like, this is a deal breaker. You know, I don't date women, small dogs, but be like, you know, when you're dating someone, you're a little wary, you're figuring them out. But I think uh-huh. it's a legitimate red flag. I mean, especially, I mean, it's not just the small dog. It could be certain breeds. It could be if you put bows in their hair. <laughs> I think that's starting to signal some stuff, right? Like yeah. if, if you have a little dog, and you're putting bows in their hair, then that sort of does tell you information about who they are. Right. Well, I guess, you know, it's funny, like I had asked Annie, you know, how do you not let emotions cloud your, your you know, decisions? She's like, well, that's impossible because you're human. So I, I wonder, you know, how do you balance the fact that we're emotional and irrational human beings with taking risks that are not just absolutely stupid? Uh, well, I mean, I said there's a lot of uh, evidence that the more risks you take, the better you do get at it. Um, mm-hmm. But sometimes I said it's not a bad thing to have a risk and have it not go well. I mean, you need to have some risks not go well or make some bad decisions because how else are you going to learn? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, we can all get better. And, you know, no matter how good you are at it, you're still going to make mistakes. Like I wrote a whole book on it. I studied risk for years with like very smart people. But a couple of months ago, I got an email from a local spa offering me a really discounted pack. I went to the spa a lot and I got a heavily discounted package of spa treatments if you bought a package, right? Mm-hmm. And so I very happily did this without thinking twice about it. But then like three months later, they went out of business. And clearly that discount was because they were a distressed company. And uh-huh. I was thinking about it. I'm like, that was really dumb. Like, effectively, it's like why an Argentine bond is, che- is cheaper than a U.S. bond, right? Because of default risk. Like, I took on default risk and I didn't even think about it. And I'm yeah. like, I can't believe I made this mistake. I should have known better. Um, mm-hmm. But all that I was thinking is, oh, cheap spa package. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's going to happen. But then again, 
I learned when I, when they closed down, I found a new one. And when they offered me a package, I was like, there's no way. <laughs> well, so, so that raises a, a question for me, you know, as somebody who's an economist and, and sort of having this sort of, you know, filter through which you see the world, um, do you find it hard to turn it off? Like, is that the way you view all interactions now with other human beings? Like, are you always seeing through, uh, everything through the lens of risk? Um, probably. I mean, I don't think my, I don't think in an overt way, I don't like harass people with it, but it, I, right. I, I mean, the way I actually think that's not a bad way to live. Like I really was inspired to write the book by my work with uh, Robert Merton, who's a famous financial economist. And I just noticed he thought this way. I mean, he won the Nobel prize for putting a price on learning how to put a price on risk. Like he came up with a formula that could price options, which is just ins- like insurance for, um, financial assets. So he is the risk guy. He's like one of the best risk scholars of his generation, maybe ever. And, you know, you're just, I remember we, uh, we were working on a model together and it was bought by this company in Texas. And so we, for about three years, we were both commuting to Texas and we used to carpool in together. And I remember it, it was in Austin, the Hills of Austin. Um, and there, um, there was a driveway where our company was and there was a driveway maybe um, like a 200 feet right before it. And then the next driveway was like two miles down the road. And every day we would drive to work, you'd turn into the first driveway. And I'd be like, anyway, that was not the driveway for our company. I'd have to turn around and go back out on the road. And I'm like, Bob, how are you making this mistake? It's like, you know, you've made this commute so many times. I've done it with you. And he's just was like, well, I'm pretty sure it's the second driveway, but I always take the first because it's a non-symmetric loss function. So in the off chance I'm wrong and I forgot, I have to drive a whole mile, then a whole mile back. And I was like, wow, he thinks about the, a non-symmetric loss function. I mean, who just has that in their head? But, you know, <laughs> you know, he is right. Like he, I was really like realized after spending time with him and learning risk from him that like, wow, this is actually a really useful way to live your life. I mean, you don't have to constantly said berate your friends with it, but it is kind of a very nice way to organize your thoughts and can help you make better decisions. Uh, well, it's, you know, we'll, we'll get to uncertainty, um, you know, towards the end of our conversation. But I, it, when you say this and you think about historical context, like I think by the time I was 31, I thought, okay, you know what? Historically, I've been really bad at having day jobs. I've been fired from mm-hmm. all of them. So I think the risk of going and doing something creative is actually far less than going to yet another day job, which I'll probably get fired from, um, you know, which of course has its downsides as well because of the fact that the income isn't guaranteed, mm-hmm. but you know, it was one of those things where, like, I, I thought, I've been thinking about that in the context of everything you've just said. Yeah. I mean, I probably made a similar realization. You know, I, uh, I did. I, I realized at a certain point I was not good at working at big institutions. Anyway, you get all of their credibility, you get all their resources, you get all that stability. But, you know, this is it. it it's a risk, but like, given what it sounds like your goals are or my goals are, it didn't make sense for us mm-hmm. to do that. Yeah. Well, let's talk about this whole idea of getting the biggest bang for your risk buck, um, particularly diversification, because I, I think that, you know, diversification in, in terms of finances, I think people understand. And it, it's funny because um, we had uh, Sunni Pillay, who's a Harvard neuroscientist here, and I was talking to him about goals and, and relationships and all sorts of stuff. And he said, you know, are you doing things that increase the probability of, you know, interesting things happening in your life? And I'm curious, you know, from your perspective, if we didn't look at it through the finance context, like what does diversica- diversification do for that? Like from a human behavior context, I know we've talked about it from a dating context and already. So mm-hmm. I'm just curious. I mean, I even think of it as a, as a creative that the more that you create, the more likely you are to create something that actually uh, strikes a chord with somebody. Yeah. I mean, I think certainly like in 
or anywhere, but in New York, there's every night, there's a million things you could be doing that's fascinating. Um, and it's really easy just to do the same thing with your friends or go to the same, like I go to a lot of economics events, like economic speakers, economic discussion groups. But, uh, certainly like, I think my life is richer when I diversify and do something different. Like the way I found that surf chapter was that there's a Patagonia across the street from me on the Bowery. And they had some guy giving a lecture on how he built a plywood boat and sailed down the coast of Baja. You know, that's certainly like a big diversification for me in terms of my normal social events. But he mentioned something really profound about big wave surfing and risk that gave me the idea to do that chapter. And I think I would, mm-hmm. I would argue even going to Oahu for a surf risk conference, even maybe a better economist. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I think definitely if you're creative, but I think for anyone, diversification and dating and choosing and what you do definitely sort of, I think enriches your life and, you know, definitely would make it more interesting. Although that's a great way of yeah. thinking about it. I love that he said, what are you doing to make your, to increase the odds your life's more interesting? I should think that way. Yeah. Well, the other thing, you know, as, as a follow-up on that, uh, if you think about the way that we choose careers and jobs, it's kind of the polar opposite, right? Like you go into a job right out of college and you're, you're like, hey, so this is the job that I'm going to commit to for a year after three interviews. You wouldn't get into a year-long relationship with somebody after three dates. And yet that's how we do careers. Somebody, I don't remember who it was. Somebody on, on our podcast once said, we have this idea of sort of a soulmate version of purpose and when it comes to our careers. Um, so, I mean, as an economist, do you think we should change that? Um, and is it like, and then of course, then you look at it from the side of the company is, okay, is it efficient to hire somebody uh, for a short period to figure out whether we're a good fit or, you know, do we have, need to have them stay around for a year? Well, I think we are getting better at matching for jobs. I mean, it used to be like 25% of people were in a job had been in that job for less than a year because people would always get hired mm-hmm. and quit. And I think just technology has improved matching, maybe for dating too. Um, mm. so people are more likely to stay in jobs, but it's like, it's not getting married. Like you wouldn't marry someone after three dates, but you also marry someone with the intention that this will last forever. And you usually don't go into right. a job thinking, well, this will be my, this will be my, I will work at this company for life. Particularly now people tend uh-huh. to be more open-minded. And it's said, like you also, you know, with dating, you don't really know a lot about a person, but when you go for a job interview, you can do a lot of research on the company. You pretty much pretty much mm-hmm. decided this is the industry for you. So you're not going completely blind. It seems like it would be a waste. I hate job interviews. And any um I, I remember when I was an undergrad interviewing for investment banks, you'd have to do like 20 interviews. And you know, I always wonder how you get through those interviews because I feel like if I meet 20 people, maybe at best 15 will like me. But what about the other five who <laughs> <laughs> have veto power? Someone's always going to dislike you yeah. if you meet 20 people. Like no one will ever get hired. Well, I mean, a rumor has it at most venture capital firms, literally every, everybody has to sign off on you, uh, which is, is bizarre. Like, how does anyone get through that? I mean, this is why I'm not good at getting jobs in institutions. It's like, it's just, I don't know how to please everyone. Well, it's funny because I was really good at giving inter- like doing the job interviews. I was just terrible yeah. at the job. So I would get the job, but I was terrible at the job, but I was really good at performing in an interview. With so, everyone. So like even of, if you had 15 people, yeah. they all liked you. Not all 15. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't think I've ever been like, I don't think I've ever been in a position where I made it through 15 rounds of interviews. Um, I, I got ruled out too soon for that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I say like finance jobs. I mean, maybe they pay you a lot. So they're very risk averse that you have to meet everyone on the team and everyone on the team has to like you. 
And I mean, they hire yeah. someone, so I guess someone knows how to get through that process and have everyone like them, but I am not one of them. Yeah. So let's talk about this idea of being the master of your domain. You talk about hedging and insurance. So, you know, how do we do that in our lives? Um, well, hedging is, I mean, technically, it's giving up upside in exchange for reducing downside risk. So it's just like de risking, like taking less risking, like less risk. Like, if I, I think skiing is scary, it's a risk. So it would be, say, um, instead of skiing Black Diamond Trails, maybe doing, was it Blue Square Trails? Was that? Yeah. Yes. yes, Blue Square Trails. Or uh, the example I give with surfing in the book is, you know, big waves travel in, say, sets. And the first wave might be the biggest wave, but it's more risky because you'll have four big waves after you, sort of, that increases the odds you'll drown. So you want to wait for the fourth or fifth wave in a set. Anyway, they might be smaller and less risky because it's a lot less risky. So that's hedging. Insurance is, I think, more fun because you get to keep all that upside after you pay a premium. And in exchange for that premium, someone takes away your downside risk. And so pretty much anytime you pay something, so you have something that pays off if something bad happens, is insurance. Mm -hmm. So it's not just, say, buying like fire insurance. It's also, say, packing extra water if you're going on a hike. You have that extra weight, which is the cost. But if you get dehydrated or it's hotter than you expect, you have that water there. Okay. So I want to bring us, uh, I think, full circle to really talking about another subject that um, I think, particularly with creative people, um, they really have to think about is uncertainty. You know, I mean, the very nature of the jobs that you and I have is uncertain, especially when we're, you know, doing creative work like writing books, mm -hmm. like we can't predict whether anybody's going to like it. I know you wrote about the Hollywood movie studios as well. Uh, so one, how do you navigate uncertainty without losing your mind? And then how you know, in the con, you know, in the face of uncertainty, to do you prevent history, particularly bad parts of history, from repeating itself? So what I th I just want to be clear. So I say uncertainty. I, I think is this what you mean, like sort of unmeasurable risks or risks you don't anticipate? I guess yeah, that's that's one way to put it. Yeah, yeah, because you know, risk you can never manage a risk to have a perfect outcome, but you know, you're sort of like increase the odds. Uncertainty is mm -hmm. like off distribution risks. Like if risk is the distribution of all the things that could happen, uncertainty is the thing you never imagined happening. Um, yeah. or is a risk that's just impossible to measure. And it's interesting because there's a certain tension between risk and uncertainty. So risk mm -hmm. is what you plan for and uncertainty is what you can't plan for. But if you plan too much, you expose yourself to uncertainty more because you're not, you're not ready for it. Cause mm -hmm. the way you, the only way to manage uncertainty is flexibility or agility. So yeah. if you, if something happens, you don't expect that you can pivot and change quickly. I guess it's like what they call in Silicon Valley failing fast, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I never quite understood what that meant, but I think that's what it means. Um, but of course, the more you plan, the more hedging and insurance you have, the more you've like, sort of locked yourself into a plan. So the key is with risk management is to have the plan, but also keep that little bit of flexibility around. So in finance, that just means cash on hand. Because the only mm -hmm. thing that protects you if, if, you know, and if you know, the stock market crashes and you never expected it is to have cash. Yeah. Well, so I think about that in the context of having gone to business school. You know, I went to business school in the fall of 2007 and I graduated April 2009. And when I went in, nobody thought, oh, you know, the bottom is going to fall out of the economy and we're all going to basically be worse off than before we got here. Uh, which I think to me, that's kind of uncertainty you're talking about, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Or, I mean, sometimes there's a risk. I mean, there, I, I think there's always a chance there's going to be a recession, right? So I guess uncertainty, I guess, would have been the depth of the recession. Like, I mean, that was mm -hmm. unlike anything 
you know, anyone had experienced in our lifetime or really probably since the Great Depression. Yeah. So, I mean, it certainly caught a lot of people off guard. Like the economics profession um, was pretty certain that we would never have a bad recession again because we thought we had learned how to do risk management so well. And uh, for my uncertainty chapter, I spoke to H.R. McMaster, uh, who's now known for being Donald Trump's second national security advisor. But before that, he was known as a really sort of profound risk scholar when it came to um, military strategy. And um, I was really struck that the revolution in military affairs, which was this idea that emerged from the first Gulf War, that wars would be easy because we had so much technology and so much military strength that we would never lose a war again. And it sounds a lot to me like the great moderation, where it's just like, all right, now that we're so good at measuring risk, now that we're so good at managing risk, we'll never have a bad depression again. But uh, both those things turned out not to be true. And in some way, you could even argue that we set ourselves up for a worse recession or sort of all the things that went wrong in Iraq and Afghanistan the second time by making that assumption that we can manage risks better than we actually can. Mm. Wow. Wow. Uh, and you said basically the more that we take risks, the, the higher our tolerance gets for it, right? Like we can do bigger and bigger things. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, some people also might learn that they're not very suited for risks and might stay away from it. And that's okay, too. Yeah. I mean, I think people do get more comfortable with risk taking, although they might learn how to make manage risks better. So they might take risks, but hedge more. Um, mm -hmm. So there's different ways you could think about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds to me that what you've done here is basically given us a framework that allows people to take risks regardless of whatever their risk tolerance level is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or, I mean, I guess the economist in me is never like, this is how much risk you should take. It's more like, right. here's a framework so you can take the risk that feels right to you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I wonder, you know, like, um, where have you noticed like huge changes in your own life as a byproduct of having this perspective? Uh, and what have you seen in the lives of people who you've done work with? Um, what is it? I think my career choices definitely like I'm comfortable with risk. I, you know, I, my income might vary like by like, a magnitude of like fivefold year to year. And mm -hmm. I'm okay with it because I'm a life cycle economist. And so I look at my salary as a lifetime thing and I'm okay with some years being up and some being higher and then lower. So, I mean, and that's, I think something from my training that makes me more comfortable with uncertainty when it comes to my, um, to volatility and certainly, I'm a retirement economist, so certainly that has impacted how I invest in retirement. Um, of course, as I said, in the way I also calculate risk, I, I don't do any sort of physically dangerous things like skiing because I just, for me, mm. I don't see an upside. Yeah. Wow. Uh, well, this has been fascinating. Uh, I've really, really enjoyed talking to you. So I have one final question uh -huh. for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? What do you mean by unmistakable? It's funny because I've had to define unmistakable for the purposes of writing a book because a publisher will make you do that. Um, I defined it as something so distinctive that nobody else could have done but you. Um, but everybody has had different answers to this question. So what makes someone distinguished, like, uh, un, sort of totally, uh, like, stand out? Yeah, I guess that's one way to look at it, yeah. Huh, I would say a lot of self-confidence. Hmm. And a hat. People wear hats so we stand out. <laughs> wow. Okay. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share oh, your story. You. It was really fun. Thank you.
Yeah. Where can people find out more about you, your work, uh, the book and everything else that you're up to? Uh, I have a website that's just alisonschrager.com and the book is on all the, I guess, the bookseller websites. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas. You will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast. And I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration 
into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.